This morning we're in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts um, for weeks, and uh, we're at a particular chapter that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I went to college at SOU, that's uh, when we did the, the video, and I uh, do business every day, mostly in Ashland. So um, as we read about uh, the, the people in Athens in Acts 17, um, th there's just a lot of, of similarities to really modern day uh, thinking, um, you know, relativism. And I'll just say if, if last week, um, if you were here, Sam talked about the, uh, how to reach ultimately the, the deconstructed uh, person. That is somebody who at one time had a, uh, you know, maybe an authoritative view of scripture. Maybe they have a Judeo view of the world. They understand, you know, creation, deism. Um, yet they, they get to this point, and, and particularly he talked about Christians, where the Bible becomes less and less relevant. They start picking and choosing what they believe or ultimately throw it out altogether, start making up what they want to believe. So last week was the deconstructed. Um, I would say this week Paul is reaching, um, to, to stick with the analogy, the unconstructed. That is those that have never heard of the gospel of Jesus, never have... have uh, had a, a biblical authoritative view of scripture, um, have not come from any sort of uh, you know, value besides what was in Greco uh, culture at that time, which frankly is, is very much like the West today. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting chapter because it's, it's, you know, Paul's preached a lot of sermons um, up to this point if you've been following Acts. This sermon is, is a little bit different. Um, you know, most of Paul's teachings have been to uh, other Jews. If you know Paul's background, he was a Jew. He calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Benjamite. He grew up, uh, you know, very much as an Orthodox Jew. So much so, he was so passionate. He became a leader of the Jews and ultimately was so passionate, he killed Christians. Uh, when Jesus died, resurrected, and people started talking about it, he was one of the guys, he was like the Osama bin Laden of his day, killing Christians um, that didn't believe in Orthodox Judaism. Um, so Paul comes from that, that DNA. And so most of his sermons, you know, a lot of them, he would be taking people through the authority of the Torah and how, you know, he would almost lead them along the Romans road, so to speak, of, of you know, here's the teachings of Moses, teachings of Abraham, here's how it all points to Jesus. Um, this sermon in particular is, uh, it, it's just different. And, and I, I guess the, the heart of what I want to um, communicate this morning is that when we are reaching the unconstructed, um, there's a, a very common idea that in Acts 17, Paul watered down the message. Many people actually use Acts 17 as a case uh, study to prove that we should water down the message, we should not take the Bible as serious, we should not talk about Jesus, we should not talk about, and, and as, you, as you, we go through it, you're gonna see why that is not the case at all. Um, but in Acts, there's essentially two, two responses. We can, you know, we can either accept, uh, you know, that the gospel is real, that Jesus is God, and that he really does want to, you know, reach people, and nothing I say or do um, is going to change that, to be unashamed of the gospel, um, or, you know, we can, we can water it down, make it more palatable, um, 
there's a uh, one way to say it is make it more popular. Um, and and I really think that this uh, text is it's it's one of my favorite texts because um, the heart of this, and I would say the heart of the Great Commission, our call as Christians, is not that we would water down the message, but that we would say the message um, in a way that can be heard. And as we go through this, you're gonna see Paul does not uh, in any way compromise or water down the message, but he contextualizes the message for his audience. He contextualizes the message for the culture. And so I wanna start with, um, <clears throat> you know, who, who is he speaking to? Uh, if you know Greco history, I, I, you know, there's a lot of the Western thinking that comes from really this time and about 200 years prior in, in Athens specifically. Athens was the place where uh, philosophy, mathematics, science was all pioneered. A lot of our Western thinking that we still adhere to today stemmed from what many people call the golden age of, of Greco history huge innovations in, in understanding, uh, you know, constellations in the stars, astronomy, uh, you know, di different aspects of mathematics, and the biggest impact is philosophy. Um, you know, guys like Socrates, guys like Plato, guys like Aristotle made a huge impact in, in Western thinking and, and still to this day in terms of understanding personal liberty and personal happiness and individual freedom, a lot of that stemmed from Greco, th this particular city that Paul is preaching. Um, so let's jump into it. The, uh, the, the text is, and we're just gonna um, read it together, it's Acts 17, and we're gonna go down to verse 16, if you have your Bible. Now, up to this point, Paul, uh, you know, Paul takes several, he takes three huge trips. Um, the first trip is about 1,400 miles. We've already talked through his first trip. Uh, Paul is actually on his second epic journey. This is his biggest one. It's about 2,800 miles. And uh, then he takes another one later on, about 2,700 miles. So we're in epic journey two. Uh, and it, it's amazing that Paul is you know, the big question is why is Paul sent out? In Acts 9, Paul meets Jesus face to face. Jesus, you know, basically shipwrecks his ideology in the best way. And Paul from that time knew that he was not only called to follow Jesus, but to proclaim this message to the world. So Paul, the reason why he's taking these journeys is to spread this message. And so he's on journey number two, and he has uh, just come from Thessalonica, which Sam talked about last week, then Berea, and this week uh, he's in Athens. Um, so we're gonna talk about uh, really three things. Um, we're gonna see Paul uh, in his delivery of the message, the content of the message, and ultimately the result of the message. And I want to prove the case that Paul doesn't water down the message, but he says the message in such a way that can be heard. Um, all right, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so then that is Silas and Timothy. Now, it doesn't say this, uh, but you kind of get this picture. Everywhere Paul went, uh, he was either arrested, beat up, 
uh, or they'd be kicked out of the, the, the city, the town. And so it doesn't say this, but you kind of get the feeling they're like, uh, that Timothy and Silas are like, you know what, Paul, why don't you go ahead to Athens? We'll meet you there. Um, so he's there on his own, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. Now, while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Delivery of the message, content of the message, result of the message, starting with the delivery. You notice verse 16? What I love is that Paul observes culture. Paul's a missionary, so wherever he went, I believe, he would spend time observing that culture. That's what he's doing here. While he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
He's walking in Athens, and you have to know, Athens was the epicenter of culture. This is the Seattle, the New York of his day. This is, a lot was happening here. So he's seeing thousands of people, and in Athens, Greece, many of you know the history. We call it mythology. They would have called it theology. He saw idols to Apollo. He saw idols to Zeus. He saw idols to Poseidon. He saw idols to Eros. And he sees them worshiping, and he sees these temples that are constructed to meet with God, and he's just observing. We'll see later on, he even quotes a secular poet. So I believe he was looking at literature. He's reading. He's trying to understand the culture that he's in. And that jumped out to me because it's easy as a Christian to want to hide from culture. Um, but there's a huge difference between consuming culture and observing culture. To consume culture means passively. I watch the shows, I listen to the music, I watch the movies, like Nacho Libre. All right, I see, I see the culture, I enjoy the culture, and I'm passive about the culture. I just, I let it come in, I don't give it any thought, and little by little, your mind starts to become formed by the culture. Now, there is nothing wrong with good music, good movies, good shows, right? Culture, I, there's a lot of beauty in, in art and, and things that are quote-unquote secular. The issue is, are we, like Paul, observing the culture or consuming the culture? And I believe that to hide yourself from culture is actually going to prevent our effectiveness in any sort of ministry where God has you. And whether that is in Grants Pass or Ashland or wherever God is calling you, there's a culture. We all have culture. Every city, every nation is a culture. There's a set of beliefs. There's a set of influencers. There's a, a certain type of music that's acceptable. There's a certain type of dress that's acceptable. Um, and, and there's a culture. And it is okay to observe culture. It can be dangerous to simply consume culture, right? But Paul is not scared to see the temples. He's not scared to walk up and watch the idol worship. He's not participating, but he sees it because he wants to understand who, is, who are these people. So the question for you and for me is, do we take the time, do you take the time to observe culture, your culture, my culture? In Grant's Pass, you know, I won't go too deep in this, but in Grants Pass, there's a culture. There's a particular culture. It's a retirement community in a lot of ways. There's not as many employers. There's some employers. There's not as many employers in Grants Pass. But do you see the city that you're in as a missionary? Do you know the population? Do you understand some of the regions? Do you understand that Dutch Bros plays a pretty big role in this city? Do you understand that there's a, there's a youth culture? There's an older culture? There's everything in between. And there's a culture in this city. There's a culture in Ashland. There's a culture in Talent, Phoenix, Medford. There's a culture in Southern Oregon. And I think it's a disservice to the people that God is calling us to reach if we don't observe culture. If we don't see what is it that people value, what is it that people worship, what is it that people care about. And you'll see why that's important later on in this sermon. But, but a big question, do you take time to view culture, observe culture, not consume it, but view it? So Paul, 
In verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What I love about Paul, Sam said this last week, I loved it. He tends to start with the low-hanging fruit. His background is Judaism, so he almost always starts in the synagogue. It's quite amazing, actually. And his conversations in the synagogue would have been very similar to what we've seen already. That is, he would walk people through the Torah and help them understand why Jesus is better than any sacrifice that we could make to God, that Jesus is better and bigger, and he has resurrected, and it was the Jewish people, it was, it was the devout Jewish rulers that killed him, and he would speak in that way, and you see that throughout Acts, but he's reasoning with them, he's reasoning them, and then it says he went, verse, uh, what are we in, 18? Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and I missed the part where he goes to the marketplace. So he starts with the Jews, and then he goes to the marketplace. And while he's in the marketplace, the Epicureans and the Stoics, it's a very, uh, th there's a lot of detail to this, so I, I wanted to sum it up as best I could. The Stoics, if I could sum it up, are philosophers that tried to answer the question, what makes a person good? The Epicurean philosophers tried to answer the question, what makes people happy? And uh, that's as much as I'll say about that. There's a lot to it, but that's, in essence, who he's talking with. So verse 18, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So... People use Acts 17 to say he's watering down the message. And if you don't know, uh, babbler is an insult. And he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Later in, uh, Sam's going to talk about Corinthians next week, he writes an epistle to that church and he says he claimed to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Right? The resurrection clearly is part of that. But he's clearly, he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection so much so that people are making fun of him. Yet, what I find so interesting, and this is um, what stood out to me as I read this, clearly his words were seasoned with salt. There was a graciousness to the way Paul spoke. He would say this in Colossians, to let your words be seasoned with salt. Um, he'd say this in Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. When Paul spoke the truth about Jesus and the resurrection, he did so with a gracious undertone, that there was a, a seasoning of salt. There was an attractiveness. It invited more questions. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is essentially, and this is a big moment, it's where the philosophers, the influencers, the educators, the academics would talk about news, new philosophies, new events, and, and really, to be able to speak in Athens when there's thousands of people at the Areopagus was a, was a tremendous honor. And he gets this seat at the table. He gets this, this voice with all the influencers. In verse 20, they say, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
Paul gets this amazing opportunity. This is like his Oprah moment. This is like his TED Talk. And if there's any time to water down the message, it'd probably be right now. He gets a chance to be an influencer in the culture. And people say, Acts 17, water down the message. And it's very interesting how he tackles this. But a couple takeaways from that first section. Paul starts with those that he knew best. My question to you is, what is your background and where is the low-hanging fruit in your life? Before you get to the, uh, let's say the folks you don't know as well, the, the, the Areopagus moment, God has low-hanging fruit right now in your life. What's your background? Paul's background was Judaism, so he would go to the synagogue. Some of you and some of us have a background of crime. We have a background of maybe religiosity. We have a background of, you know, maybe you're adopted. There's opportunities that God can reach people through you just based on the low-hanging fruit of where you've come from. And I find that so encouraging because he doesn't start with the most difficult, I mean, this is a pretty difficult group to reach, right, the Athenians? He starts with those that he knew. And in doing that, God opens up the opportunity to, to these philosophers, these Stoics, to say more. They hear the way he's talking about this Jesus and the resurrection, and they want to learn more, so much so that they give him a center stage. Fox News is streaming, CNN, MSNBC, everybody's there. Everybody wants to hear, what does this man have to say? This is interesting. We haven't heard this before. So what does he say? Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you're very religious. Where did he get that from? He got that from his time observing culture. You're religious. And frankly, there were those there that were agnostic. There were those there that were skeptics. There were those there that were polytheists, many. And he says, you're all religious. I, I perceive it. You're very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. I recently did a real estate transaction with somebody in Ashland, and she kept saying, where our, our listing was about to expire, she kept saying, I just know I have an inner voice, Brian. Somebody is going to come this week, and they're going to buy my house. I know it. My inner voice is telling me, the universe is telling me, they're going to buy my house. I know it. You know, pretty critical of that. Oh, yeah, that's okay, whatever. Yo. Not even kidding. That very week, we had been on the market for almost a year. That very week, we meet the people, they love the house, they write an offer. And of course, I'm, I'm sitting there like scratching my head, what the heck? This inner voice, and I'll get this opportunity here in a few weeks when we close, I get these chances all the time, to name that inner voice. But Paul does this amazing thing where 
they're worshiping to this unknown God, sort of an insurance policy, you know, just in case we missed the God, we're going to worship and make sacrifices to him. God named, or Paul names him. What you therefore worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. This is bold. Paul's bold when he does this. So we've looked at the delivery, how he gets his, his moment. His words are seasoned with salt. He's starting with the low-hanging fruit. He's talking Jesus and the resurrection, and it's just interesting enough to these people that they want to hear more. Well, the question is, does he water down the message in his sermon? And I believe the answer is no. Some of the critics say he didn't quote the Torah, which is true, and he didn't use the name of Jesus, which is also true. But you'll see something so interesting. He sticks to the overarching meta-narrative of scripture, which is, as many of us know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's, that's the theme of the Bible. God creates, man sins, fall, God redeems, and ultimately, the resurrection, we all get to be one with him. Consummation. Paul has this very difficult task of bringing these people into his worldview. And what happens in Christianity, I think, as I talk to the people that um, we got the chance to interview, we really dug into their experience with Christians and almost all of it had the same theme, that is that they impose their views on me. They slam it, they're slamming their ideals on us, they're pushing their beliefs on us. And then I asked them, has anybody ever asked you these questions? Any Christians you know, has anybody asked what you actually believe? And they all said no. No, but they told us what they believed. What you see in the life of Jesus, he would always begin with love, lead with mercy, and then he would always face the facts. As Christians, we flip that. We want to start with the facts. We use it as an excuse not to give mercy, and then we call it tough love. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He does not start with, you had five husbands. He could have. He could have said, it's kind of promiscuous, you know, five husbands and you're living with a guy, yeah. Start with the facts, yeah. Use it as an excuse not to give mercy and then said, well, I was just giving her love. That's what we do. He doesn't, he starts with, if you would have known who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you rivers of living water and you would never thirst again. And he's not talking about the physical thirst that she's trying to meet in the moment. He sees the deepest thirst in her soul that causes her to go after relationship after relationship, man after man. He sees this cavernous thirst in her and he starts with the invitation that he is the satisfaction that can quench that thirst. And as he progresses in the conversation, 
I see you have five husbands. You're right, you have five husbands. And the man you're living with is not your husband. I see that. He faces the facts, always. But he does it in such a way that they can hear, that she can hear. All of a sudden she perceives, you're a prophet. She's so moved, she's so changed, she's so transformed. She can't help but tell others. That's the heart of Jesus. I believe that's the heart of Paul right here. He's not watering down the message. This meta narrative of scripture, regardless of where somebody's at, almost anybody can understand this. And in this culture in particular, he's dealing with people who want to hear new ideas, yet they don't have a fundamental belief of the Bible. And I find that so interesting because most of my Christian life, I've been trained to take people to the Bible. And in modern 21st century America right now, and I can tell you I, in Ashland every day, people don't care what the Bible says. So when I'm trying to prove my case for why somebody should follow Jesus, I'll tell them, well, Romans says, and they'll say, what is Romans? I don't care about Romans. And what I'm doing there is I'm forgetting that I need to understand what they actually know, what they actually believe. Who are they worshiping? Because we all worship all the time. Romans 1 says that they traded the truth about God for the lie and worship and serve created beings rather than the created God. It's not just Athens that does this. This is all of us. This was me. And I certainly didn't come to Jesus starting with the facts. Somebody had to take time to understand what I believed. And I had a lot of misconceptions about God and I had a lot of amazing people that walked me through each of those. Awesome, awesome. So he does not focus on what he has to say. He focuses on what they need to hear. And I remember hearing the story from John Townsend. If you know John Townsend, he's a clinical psychologist, theologian, wrote a book called Boundaries, phenomenal book, phenomenal man. Um, but he gave this talk once and he told this story and it's always stuck with me. He studied at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is amazing. It's formed some of the best, most influential leaders of our time in Christianity. He's studying at Dallas Theological Seminary and he would take breaks at this diner nearby and he began to form a friendship with one of the waitresses. We'll call her Cindy, I think he does. And so he'd see Cindy just about every week. Hey John, you want the usual? Yeah, I'll take the usual, great. So he goes in to the diner one week and he sees Cindy. Hey John, you want the usual? Yes, yeah, I want the usual. And then Cindy says, hey John, you're one of those Bible guys, right? He's like, yeah, well, I guess I am, yeah. Um, okay, I've got a Bible question for you. Okay, and he was so excited, he's pumped. He's like, great, I just got done reading about penal substitutionary atonement, this is awesome. It's like, I, I wonder what she's gonna, you know, are we gonna talk about the rabbinical law? I mean, there's just, there's so much I could share. I'm just, wonder what I get to share, you know. We're gonna talk about spiritual, what are we gonna talk about? And he was so excited, and uh, she comes back and brings the food. She says, all right, here's my Bible question. He's like, yeah, what is it? She said, um, my boyfriend hits me a lot. And I'm wondering where God is in all that. And that was so moving to me because I, 
I've spent a lot of my Christian life focusing on what I want to say. I used to go downtown Medford with friends and we'd go to, you know, like near the strip club and we'd preach at people as they're walking in and we used to have this game or let's get the gospel out before that person crosses the street and we, we were pretty fired up and we had a lot of things to say. And we never once spent time with somebody asking what they believe, not even once. And I think the heart of Paul is the same heart as Jesus. That is, not what do I want to say, but what do they need to hear? And if he has any moment to compromise the message, it's right now. And this is why people make the argument, is because the sermon is so different, and Paul is focused on what they need to hear. But as, we, as you see, he's not watering down the message. Acts 17 Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Right there, creation. He's already, half of them, who are the agnostics and the skeptics, he's already isolating them. And then he keeps going nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There's the fall. Just in case, you know, the deists would have gotten on board with what he had just said. Oh yeah, God's not in a temple. I get that. He's the creator. Okay, I, I, I can see that. He says he's not in a temple and he can't be served by human hands. There's nothing you can do to appease him. In their culture, the reason they made sacrifices to Apollo and to Zeus and to these gods is because they instinctively, instinctively knew that they needed forgiveness. They needed the gods' favor. They needed to have some sort of mediation, and so they would make sacrifices. And Paul says, it's not working. It actually doesn't mean anything. You can't make a sacrifice big enough to atone for the depths of your sin. You can't. He goes from creation then to fall. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we have our being, as even some of your own poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's quoting secular poets here. He actually knew the exact scriptures in these poetry readings. Um, I think it's Artis wrote the book uh, Phenomena, which is where that poem comes from. It's all about constellations. It's actually pretty boring. I read most of it. It's not good. I'll just say that. Um, but he quotes it because he knew it. He was informed enough, observed culture enough to know this would have been a poem that almost everybody knew. This would have been an idea that almost everybody would have adhered to. The heart of the book is, yeah, heart of the book is very humanistic in its orientation. It does not attribute much to God. Um, it talks about mystery, but it's, it's not, uh, 
It's not biblical. And he knows this, and he knows they would have held high regard for Platonic thinking, for the thinkings of Socrates, who influenced Plato, Plato, who influenced Aristotle, Aristotle, who created you know, the virtues, who ultimately, those three affected our educational system, I would say, more than you know, any, any men in human history. They, in, in Athens, Greece, in the West, we as Americans have not been influenced probably by, by anybody more than those three. And, and so this culture would have been highly influenced as well. This was about 300 years after uh, Aristotle. And so he's talking to these people who, and, and he's literally saying, you know everything you believed? It's wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. It's wrong. He's not going to get a lot of book sales from this. He's not going to get a lot of uh, admiration from this. He's preaching the gospel. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It's Jesus. That there is sin, that there is a need to turn from that sin and to trust in him and that salvation alone can only be found in Jesus. You cannot make the sacrifice, but God can. You can't serve the gods, but God wants to serve you. That's what he's saying. That he wants you to change your mind, turn from sin, trust in him. There is a man, one man, who was appointed. He doesn't name Jesus, which is why this gets so much criticism. Some actually think he regretted this sermon. I don't think so. And he has given us, continuing verse 31, he has given us, uh, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That man who was appointed, who's going to judge the living and the dead, he was resurrected. He's not past, he's present. He's alive. He's not dead. He's not a historian like Plato. He's not a historian like Aristotle. He is alive. This God who is man was raised from the dead. It's very difficult in our day to not want to water down the gospel. It's not as popular. But watering down the gospel and contextualizing the gospel are two different things. And I think Paul is very strategic in the words that he chooses, in the references that he brings in. And my question for you and the question for me and for us is, number one, do we know the gospel? Are we experiencing the person of Jesus in our own life individually? on a daily basis? Could we give an account for our faith, Paul says to Timothy, to be ready in season and out, to give an answer? Do we know the answers? Do we know Jesus? Are we experiencing him for ourselves? The second question is, am I approaching the people that God's putting in front of me with that question, not what do I want to say, but what do they need to hear? The way I interact with my daughter is far different than the way I interact with my son. I love them both, but they both need to hear things in a different way. My daughter wants eye contact. She wants me to empathize. She wants me to hear all of her thoughts, not just something she wants, dad, no, 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 you know, if I try to look at my phone, ah, ah, you know, she's dad. So when we're talking, I'm focused, I'm in. My son, 
He wants me to pin him on the ground, wrestle him, like put him in a headlock, and then talk to him. That's like his favorite thing. <laughs> like I'll whisper in his ear as he's like gasping for air. It's amazing. <laughs> and we have lots of really deep conversations in that way. It's just awesome. <laughs> and you know what? He can hear me. It's great. Paul approaches this group of people with such compassion and such love. And he is so zeroed in on what they need to hear that he preaches the unashamed gospel. We are to be unashamed of the gospel for it has the power unto salvation for those who believe. That is true. And we believe that. The gospel, the good news. But let me say this. The gospel is not information. The gospel is not principles, though there is no better principle. The gospel is not just a story, though there is no better story. The gospel is a person, and his name is Jesus. If the gospel is information, it's all about being right. If the gospel is a person that you experience, it's about being near. I want to win over this person, not say my beliefs. I don't want to just say what I believe. I want them to hear it. The heart of the Great Commission is that we would be heard. So what's the result? Huge revival, right? Everybody gets saved. Countries flipped over for Jesus. Amazing, huge Jesus movement revival. Billy Graham? Nope. Acts 17, 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some commentators believe those two held a pretty high honor in church history, made an impact in church history. It's hard to say authoritatively. But the point is, he preaches the gospel in a contextualized way. Some mocked him, like before. Some actually joined and believed him, and others said, I'd like to learn more about that. What happened when Jesus spoke plainly about the truth? Some mocked him, some joined him, and some were intrigued and wanted to hear more. What happens when we when he talks to the Jewish people, some would mock him, most actually would mock him, beat him, throw him in prison. Some would join him, and others would want to learn more. The result is the same. So my question is, if the result is the exact same, why water down the message? If no matter what I say, some are going to believe, some are not, some are going to want to learn more, why not? in the most loving, compassionate, seasoned with salt way I possibly can, preach the unashamed, undiluted gospel of Jesus, the reality that Jesus loves you as an individual. He loves you. He forgives you and your specific sin. He rose three days later to conquer Satan's sin, death, hell, the wrath of God for you. He is alive. That truth, that reality, why compromise that message? Popularity is not the goal. Love is. 
He goes on, we'll see next week. He plants a church in Corinth. He's there for a year and a half. And he's there building a church in one of probably the one of the most difficult settings because there is no common belief of, of Judeo-Christian values. It's the exact opposite. They would have been highly influenced by Athens, Corinth. If you look at it geographically, it's very close. And if you lose the battle in the mind, right? Athens is all about the mind. It's all about thoughts, knowledge. And if you lose the battle in the mind, the result is you're gonna lose the battle in the body. That was Corinth. Corinth was the downstream. Right? So if the educational system today says that truth is relative, that gender is relative, that everything's relative, the downstream in culture is going to be what you see in Corinth, what we see today. So Paul plants a church there next week. Sam's going to talk about that. And then he leaves, and then at some point he writes a letter to that church. And he's teaching them how to follow God, how to worship, how to do community as a body of believers, what the gifting should look like. He gets to chapter 12. It's all about the gifting. Chapter 14 is all about orderly worship. And then right in the middle of that, he writes this chapter. We call it the love chapter. It's all, you know, we rate it at weddings. It's not about weddings. It's actually for you and for me. It's as missionaries. As a church, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul nails it. He nails it. In fact, if you have your Bible and want to open it, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He says that if you know all truth and you can speak with authority the gospel, but you don't have love for the person that you're speaking it to, it's like a drum set up here and I just hit the cymbal the whole time. That would suck. Just be honest, that would be horrible. That would be a, that would be a cymbal, that'd be noise, that would be a distraction. And that's a lot of times, that's our approach to mission. Let's preach it. Let's say it so we can say it. So we can say that we said it. Love is patient, verse four. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put up childish ways. This is Christian maturity. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The point is love. And for some people, 
you'll see this in the life of Jesus. Some people need a hard word. The Pharisees were literally, they were, they were burdening God's people with regulations and rules. They needed a very hard word from the Son of God, and he gave it to them. Brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. The imagery is pretty graphic sometimes. He was very angry. And a lot of people, dare I say most people, they need the truth given to them in love. And that love is spelled out in 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It's kind. It's not boastful. We're not arrogant with this truth. We are heralds of the gospel. We take the gospel seriously, but we take ourselves not as serious, right? Because the point is not to be right. The point is to be near. The point is to win over who God has put in front of me. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is. If God says it's love, then it's love. Love is not God, but God is love. And God is holy, and God is just. But his commission to us as we go and proclaim this message that we are so honored to be stewarding is to be heard. A friend of mine, Steve, told this story about when he grew up in Portland, he had a little cul-de-sac and the kids would often play games together. They'd play baseball, and it was summertime. It's a great little cul-de-sac. He was seven or eight at the time, and he said, without fail, there was this one kid, Melvin. It's always a Melvin. It's like a, a, this kid named Melvin, like every single day, without fail, they'd get to this point when they were playing, and if Melvin did not get his way, he didn't get the bike he wanted, he got called out at first base, he lost the game. He would do this every single time. He would throw whatever he had down, and he'd say, oh, yeah? Well, if you all don't believe in Jesus, you're all going to hell. And then he'd run home. And he could go home, and he could tell his parents, I told him the gospel. I said it. But he says, when he says this story, he says, I promise you, we didn't hear him. We couldn't hear him because the tone, the words, the heart, the heart was not of love. Now, I am uh, not as reformed as they come, but I love the Bible. I hold God's word in high esteem. Um, but I think as Christians, we have been not trained well how to reach those who have not heard. And my hope today was, Lord, just teach me as I'm even talking. Let me take away insight that I can go use because I don't know a lot of times. I don't know how to reach people. But I promise you, I did... About two months ago, I was up till 3 a.m. talking with a friend who would claim he's agnostic. We were up at my house, and he was asking me all the big questions of life and we were talking through all of it, exactly what I believed, the authority of the Bible, that I believe that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that are fulfillment of specific prophecies, claims to be divine rather than human in origin. He loved that. We talked about the authority of scripture. We talked about the origination of man, sin, all of it. 
And for the first time ever in my relationship, this is a long-standing friend of mine. Um, I've said this stuff for years and he's never heard me because my heart has always been with him. Facts first, love second. I want to tell him the truth, but I'm not necessarily caring what he needs to hear. And for the first time in our entire friendship, spanning over a decade, he heard me. And he's not a Christian because some mock, some join, and some want to learn more, but he's intrigued, and he wasn't turned off, and it was, it was, a, um, it was a sweet, small victory with me and the Lord that I knew um, one day he may finally just hear God reaching out from our conversation to him, and that's my prayer. And that's my prayer for you, is that when God brings these people, these men, women, kids, whoever God has called you to reach, that your words would be seasoned with salt, that you would be considering who it is you're talking with and what they need to hear. The heart of the Great Commission is to be heard. And we have some discussion questions. I'm gonna, I think, are we, are we way past? Nope, figured we're, I totally went to longer. Sorry, everyone, all right. Um, God loves this church, and he's moving in this church, and the church is just a group of believers. I believe God has huge, huge plans here. Whether we grow in numbers or not, that's not the point, but I do believe God wants to call each of us deeper. And, um, and my prayer is that today, that you would experience the love of God for yourself because you can't go out and give what you have not received. And today, I just, um, I want to end by just praying for you, each of you, and just ask that, uh, that God would show you, open up opportunities for you to love and to speak the truth, but to do so in love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this group. Thank you so much for Philippi. Thank you for Sam and the leaders that you're raising up in this church. May we, as a culture, grow in our understanding of your truth, grow in our understanding that, God, you have saved us from the depths of our sin. We can't actually sacrifice enough to appease ourselves. And that, Lord, you are calling us, Lord, to be the church, to not just go to church, but to be the church, which is a place, Lord, where we can bring our actual selves. And God, may we leave this place out of these four walls, bringing that same experience of love from you. May we give that to others. And may we speak the truth. May you give us boldness in this gospel that you've given us. And may we have the opportunities to see real transformation as we speak the truth and do so in love. Jesus, thank you for... Um, your body, the, the word, your, your scriptures, Lord, that feed our soul and fill our mind with your thoughts. I'm just so grateful, God, that we can know you. You've made yourself knowable. And would you continue to bring us deeper? In Jesus' name, amen.